Hello, and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Margaret Parker. Today, I will be speaking with Joshua N. Goldstein, MD, PhD, about the article, Four-Factor Prothrombin Complex Concentrate versus Plasma for Rapid Vitamin K Antagonist Reversal in Patients Needing Urgent Surgical or Invasive Interventions, a Phase 3B Open-Label Non-Inferiority Randomized Trial, published in The Lancet in February 2015. Dr. Goldstein is an Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine at Harvard Medical School and serves as the Director for the Center for Neurologic Emergencies at the Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston, Massachusetts. Thank you for being with us today, Josh. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Patients who are being treated with vitamin K antagonists not uncommonly need urgent procedures. For years, vitamin K and or plasma have been most commonly used, at least in the United States, to reverse the antagonist and correct coagulation. But both therapies have their limitations and potentially adverse effects. Uh, Would you tell us, Josh, what alternatives are there to plasma infusion to reverse vitamin K antagonists and correct coagulopathy? Sure. Well, the first obvious one is vitamin K. And it's, to be honest, very underused in emergency departments around the country. And pretty much every, every major guideline formally recommends its use and has been doing so for years. And the issue, I think, is that vitamin K, it's very effective, right? This uh, is what gives your liver the opportunity to synthesize the missing coagulation factors, the, the vitamin K-dependent coagulation factors. So when you give IV vitamin K, it's very effective. Uh, And really, the problem is it takes up to 24 hours for full effect. And I think that's why a lot of emergency physicians don't necessarily think about it first line. But the issue is that it really has some effect, a significant effect, even as early as six hours. So really, emergency providers should always be considering its use in somebody who needs emergency reversal to get that in early. So that's the first major uh, alternative. And then the second sort of alternative to plasma is prothrombin complex concentrates. And it's summarized as PCCs. And one of the issues in the literature on PCCs is that different countries have different forms of this available. Uh, And it's sort of the PCC is a generic term for a concentrate of coagulation factors. And so there are some that are sort of have activated factors, such as FIBA or factor VIII inhibitor bypassing activity, F-E-I-B-A. There are many that are non-activated, and the theory, unproven as yet, is that the non-activated ones have a lower thromboembolic risk and aren't as pro-coagulant as the activated PCCs. But then the fact that so many different countries have so many different versions of it make it a little bit hard sometimes when people read the literature. They'll say, oh, this paper shows that PCC does X, Y, and Z. They don't necessarily look at which PCC specifically was used and whether they have that one available. So one thing that a lot of folks have done is try to separate them out into what they call three-factor and four-factor PCCs. And what that really means is that some of the products out there just don't have so much factor seven in them. Factor seven's got the shortest half-life of the various factors. And so concentrates that just don't have so much factor seven in them are are often called three-factor PCCs. Um, And ones that sort of have what they consider a reasonable amount of factor seven, they'd call four-factor PCCs. So the United States traditionally has not had a four-factor PCC up until a couple of years ago. And the factors that were available were didn't have much factor seven. So Bebulin and Profil 9 were available. Those are uh, two of the brand names that were traditionally available. And uh, there was a lot of controversy about whether to use them, both because, you know, one is just really better than plasma. And in fact, maybe it doesn't have as much of factor seven uh, as we could give with plasma. And second, of course, whether, you know, whether we knew whether they were effective because no randomized trials had really ever been done. 
So what had been happening was that PCCs were used in many countries, and in particular, four-factor PCCs had many studies published, including single-arm studies, in other words, no placebo-controlled studies. And so these single-arm studies showed that PCCs really corrected the INR much more quickly than did plasma. And so, so many places used them, many places recommended them. And then up until 2013, there was the first randomized trial comparing in, in bleeding patients. And then in 2015, we published a randomized trial in patients requiring a surgical procedure or an invasive procedure. So what led you to do this study that you're reporting? So there's sort of two reasons. One, sort of the philosophical and the practical. You know, philosophically, nobody had really done this study in people needing surgical procedures. There was one randomized trial in patients undergoing cardiac surgery. It was incredibly small, very underpowered, sort of hard to interpret. So people have been using something to reverse anticoagulation for people needing emergency surgery, but nobody had ever really done a randomized trial of what's the best way. And then second, of course, practically, that the goal was to bring a four-factor PCC into the U.S. for use. And so to do that, you need to do a randomized control trial and submit to the FDA for approval. And so this was the, this was the trial to present data to the FDA that this product can be used for this purpose. So what did you do in this study? So uh, in this study, what we did was we, it was a multi-center study through different countries, uh, and the enrollment really was intended to be that if your patient is on warfarin, has an elevated I or, or a vitamin K antagonist, needs emergency procedure of some kind for which you need to reverse anticoagulation to maximize safety of the procedure, you know, and this, this was a wide range of procedures which reflects clinical practice. Um, and also, you know, interventional procedures that aren't necessarily sort of operative, but still that the proceduralist really wants the patient to have a normal coagulation status to sort of minimize periprocedural bleeding. So, so the entry criteria were somebody needs reversal of their anticoagulation status. It needs to happen more quickly than just by holding warfarin or just by giving vitamin K. It needs to be that really it's, the patient has an emergent need for it, uh, has an INR of at least two. And if that was you, then you were eligible for enrollment in the study. And then what we did was we just sort of stratified patients both by vitamin K dose that the provider gave. Uh, we didn't force a vitamin K dose as part of the protocol because so many different centers and countries have different standards on that. But then the patients were randomized to receive plasma or, or FFP, fresh frozen plasma, versus four-factor PCC. I understand that partway through the trial, there was a protocol change to exclude the non-surgical interventions that the FDA requested. That's correct. What, what was happening was, uh, you know, the trial had been planned, uh, had been discussed, and then sort of midway, there was a, another FDA review. And then their concern was that when you do an open surgical procedure, that there's an ability to assess perioperative bleeding you know, a, a preoperative uh, bleeding versus, you know, sort of an expected blood loss uh -huh. versus an actual blood loss. And their concern was that interventional procedures are much harder to do that assessment and that they were worried that the endpoint would be harder to differentiate between the two arms or interpret. And so they uh, requested that we stop enrollment of patients who are having an invasive procedure and really just focus on the uh, surgical procedures. What endpoints did you have for your study? So there were two co-primary endpoints. Uh, the primary endpoint was a clinical assessment of perioperative hemostasis. And this was for different, you know, it's hard to imagine standardizing. You, you could either try to say, hey, we want a trial that has a very homogeneous population. 
but it's hard to interpret in other populations. Or you can say, let's try to mimic the real world as much as possible, but accept that we've got a heterogeneous kind of population. And so we're trying to aim for as much sort of external validity as possible. So open the door to a range of procedures and try to make the primary endpoint, like how can you make an assessment that you could use both in orthopedic procedures and GI procedures and cardiac procedures, uh, et cetera. And so the way that was done was before the surgical procedure, the surgeon or who, who was, was performing it made an estimate of the patient's blood loss, like what would be the expected blood loss for this kind of standard procedure. And then postoperatively, what was the actual blood loss? And so the idea was that each person could potentially maybe serve as their own control and say, did they have more bleeding than expected, less bleeding than expected, the same amount of expected. And so, so that was really the primary outcome. Uh, and each patient got sort of a set of criteria for defining effective versus non-effective hemostasis. Then there was a co-primary endpoint, which was the laboratory endpoint of INR reversal. Was there INR reverse within 30 minutes of the end of the infusion? Uh, so that, those were the endpoints. And what we found was that in the four-factor PCC group, INR reversal was clearly more quick, more rapid. Patients had an INR that was normalized much more quickly, dramatically more quickly comparing to start of the infusion, still more quickly even at the end of the infusion. As, as you can imagine, the plasma infusions took much, much longer mm -hmm. than the um, PCC infusions. But then we also found that patients went to their OR more quickly or went to their procedure much more quickly. They could be assessed for hemostasis much more quickly. And finally, we found that uh, the PCC was superior for both outcomes, the INR reversal outcome and the perioperative effective hemostasis outcome. Was there any difference in red cell transfusions between the two groups? No. We found no difference in blood transfusion between the two groups. Were there any other, um, I guess if you consider that an adverse event, but were there, were there any, what kinds of adverse events were you particularly concerned about and was there any difference between the two groups? The major adverse events we were sort of watching for were thromboembolic adverse events. You know, one of the major questions people have had for years is whether PCCs increase your risk of thromboembolism. You know, you're, you're giving patients a concentrate of coagulation factors. And so there have been a lot of reports in the literature that PCCs carry a risk of thromboembolic events. And the problem, of course, is we don't know, until you do the randomized trial, if you don't have a control arm, you don't know whether you're just seeing the baseline rate of, hey, we took a bunch of sick, bleeding patients who are supposed to be anticoagulated for a good reason <laughs> right. and, and reverse their anticoagulation, right? Right. And, and there's got to be some baseline rate of thromboembolism in that. And one would certainly think so. <laughs> one would certainly think so. And, and you and I, for both emergency medicine physicians and intensivists, I think you and I would both agree, if you take a bunch of sick, bleeding patients and, and admit them to the hospital or the ICU, there's a baseline risk of thromboembolism, even if you don't have them involve warfarin or anticoagulation reversal or whatever. So it's very hard, I think, in the past to sort of interpret that uh, result. So that was one of our things was thromboembolic adverse events. Of course, we looked at uh, mortality, and finally, we looked at uh, cardiac events, not just sort of myocardial ischemia, which would be sort of potentially thromboembolic event, but volume overload, which many people have thought would be a side effect of plasma. You know, it, it requires such high volume to give. So what we found was uh, no statistically significant difference in thromboembolic adverse events between the groups. The numbers, frankly, were small, uh, and they were too small for any sort of statistically significant comparison. But we certainly didn't find a signal suggesting that PCCs were any different risk than plasma. You know, that, that maybe what's happening is if you take somebody who's on warfarin for a perfectly good reason and then reverse that, that whatever you do to reverse that maybe carries some risk, right? Mm -hmm. Or their disease process carries some risk. And that it may be that both plasma and PCCs 
have that same risk. You know, whatever, whatever you do to reverse them carries whatever the same risk is. Now, what we did find was what looked like a higher frequency of fluid overload in the plasma arm, people with sort of pulmonary edema, with, uh, you know, what, so what sounded like potentially cardiac or pulmonary events that were consistent with volume overload that the investigators called volume overload. And that, I think, is consistent with maybe what people had expected. Yeah, that is not a particularly surprising finding. What do you think your study means for our treatment of patients with prolonged INRs who've been receiving vitamin K antagonists? Well, what I think we find is that, first of all, PCC is a, is a safe and effective alternative to plasma for rapid INR reversal who, who need it. So in other words, if the clinical decision is that this patient with a prolonged INR on a vitamin K antagonist needs reversal for a procedure, that the PCC is a, is a good alternative to plasma. We suggested that if the time to procedure is critical, it certainly looks like that patients with PCC went to their procedure much more quickly than the plasma patients. You know, some of the advantages which are, have been previously known, but we sort of again highlighted in by doing the randomized control trial, is that PCC is a much smaller volume. And so people with high risk for volume overload, people with maybe CHF or cardiomyopathy, maybe those are the folks who are going to specifically benefit. You know, those folks who are at highest risk of a plasma-related complication could be selected specifically for PCC. Um, and then finally, if you're really worried about perioperative bleeding, you know, potentially patients requiring a neurosurgical procedure, a, a spine procedure, maybe those, again, are the ones who will specifically benefit for those who are really worried about any difference in perioperative bleeding. I think the major disadvantage that people have raised a concern about is cost. You know, um, four-factor PCC, known as Kcentra in this country, Bariplex in most other countries, it's expensive compared to plasma. What I will say, though, is that many people also think a disadvantage of PCC is thromboembolism. As we discussed before, I'm not at all convinced that it's any different with PCC than it is with plasma. Um, and part of the difference in time in reversing anticoagulation with PCCs versus plasma is the time it takes to thaw the FFP on top of the length of time it takes to infuse it. Is that correct? That's absolutely correct. And there's actually, it's fascinating, there has been uh, several studies looking at how long it takes in large academic centers to reverse the INR for people who clearly need it. Mm -hmm. uh, so the most common one is intracerebral hemorrhage uh, yeah. and people getting um, – and, and so what you find, we all think, and probably if I were to ask, round up, you know, 10 of your colleagues and say, how long does it take to give FFP to a patient? Typically, it would take, let's say, four or five uh, units of FFP to reverse a patient. And if I asked them how long it would take, most people would say, oh, I think it takes one or two hours. Clearly, that's not true. Everybody who's ever looked at this in real life finds it takes 6, 8, 10, some places published 20, 30 hours Ooh. to reverse the INR with plasma. And you say, how could that be, right? And I think the issue is that, is that if you and I step out of sort of our ivory towers and look at what happens in the real world, we find that there's a lot of logistical challenges on multiple sides. The, if they're in the emergency department, the intensive care unit, somebody has to order it, mm -hmm. right? The blood bank has to type and screen it or cross-match it. Really, they just need sort of the type. Thaw it, as you said, send it. But then most providers will, uh, when they hang it, they don't want to hang it too fast for this very risk. Right. Uh, a lot of our patients on warfarin have cardiac problems, right? That's right. why they're on warfarin. You don't want to volume resuscitate. You don't want to volume. Exactly. <laughs> and and a lot of them are older and a lot of them have, you know, cardiomyopathy and a lot of them have all kinds of stuff. So we infuse it slowly. And what people will often do is say, well, let's start with one unit or two units and then recheck the INR and then order some more. And then each time you do that, now let's order some more begins a new process of 
you know, sending the order to the blood bank. The blood bank, get, the tech gets the order. They go to the FFP. They thaw it out. They, you know, all these steps take time, and it's complicated. And I think that you could imagine a perfect system could be, like, very, very streamlined, and nobody has yet published that. <laughs> everybody who said, everybody who's said, here's what actually happens, finds these horrifically long times. And I think we found that in this trial, I'll tell you this. I think our times for plasma in this trial were better than anybody's ever published in their real life because it was during a trial, right? We've got research right. coordinators beating on the providers. Oh, we have to get this super fast. So even in this study, we found the fastest FFP that ever gets given. And what we still found was that it just, it just takes time. And uh-huh. that's just a real life reality. Right. How much does the 4FPCC cost compared to plasma? You made reference to the cost. Yeah. So people have published that sort of the average, you know, it's, it's weight and INR based. So the it's priced at a certain number of dollars per unit. And the amount of units you give the patient is a function of their weight and their INR. But uh, folks have published that the sort of the average dosing ends up costing the system about $5,000. The average f- unit of FFP probably costs around $50. So giving somebody four units of FFP probably averages around $200 up against, you know, 5000 for four-factor PCC. Like I said, it costs less than that for a lighter patient with a lower INR. It costs more than that for a heavier patient with a higher INR. Right. And you already explained to us why it is that using plasma may take many hours to um, correct the INR. How long did it take to correct the INR uh, using 4FPCC in your study? Yeah, so it took, it was within 30 minutes, usually within, for most patients, within 30 minutes of the infusion, of the start of the infusion, patient's INR was reversed. The people who weren't reversed, and the definition in this study was uh, INR of less than or equal to 1.3, people who got 4FPCC who were not reversed typically had an INR of like 1.4, 1.5, you know, so they got in that general ballpark, but they Uh didn't quite, quite hit the 1.3 number. And now you and I, of course, now get into this territory of what is the magic INR, right? Uh How low do we really need to get it? Hematologists debate about this, and nobody really knows the right answer. That's sort of why we we sort of picked a number that seemed to be what people use in the literature. I know that most hematologists think that that if you get the INR to look like 1.4 or 1.5, you're pretty much there. That patient has restored effectively most of their coagulation factors. Mm -hmm. And from uh, time of order to time of getting the uh, infusion started with the 4FPCC, what kind of time frame were you looking at? Because with the FFP, you know, you noted that it's time to order, the blood bank has to type it, the blood bank has to thaw it. It seems to me that that would build in an additional period of time before you even got the infusion, let alone the length of time to give it and then recheck the, the coags and so forth. No, uh, that's absolutely true. So, so definitely when you order FFP, it's going to take a long time because you have to go through this whole process. The interesting thing, that there's a little bit of a difference in how we ordered it in the trial versus what I think would happen in real life. For the trial, a lot of centers it would be stored in the research pharmacy, for example, uh, uh-huh. um, which is a very different process right, than what right, would be right. happening in real life. So what I think is happening in real life is that there are some centers that store it in the emergency department, and then the nurses can just take it and draw it up like they would any other medication, mix it in and infuse it. Uh-huh. And so that can be happen just as quickly as any other right. medication. Same with your intensive care unit. In theory, you could store it in your intensive care unit. Mm-hmm. Some centers have it stored in a central pharmacy. Uh, you know, it's expensive and you right. want to be thoughtful about its use. <laughs> yes. And Right. Uh, and some centers have it stored in the blood bank. And I'll tell you the hospital where I work, it's stored in the blood bank. So you still have to go through the blood bank ordering process. It's just that it doesn't have to be, you know, type specific and it doesn't have to be uh, thawed. It's a lyophilized powder that just has to be reconstituted and delivered. What were the limitations of your study? 
So, um, you know, some of the limitations, I think, were that, uh, number one, it's a, it was a heterogeneous population. You know, the price that we paid to create a, a wide entry, like we'll just take everybody who needs surgery, the, the price that we paid was a little bit heterogeneous in population. And you could say, can you really compare, Josh, the blood loss of a hip fracture surgery against an appendicitis surgery, against a thoracentesis or a pericardiocentesis? or a craniotomy for a subdural hematoma, you know, and, and you, could, you could really make a case that these were all really different disease processes. The problem is if you wanted to select any given one, you could never do the study, right, because it would be just too small a population. Right. So I think the, one of the limitations is that because it's a heterogeneous population, it's hard to have a measure of bleeding or of clinically relevant hemostasis that applies across everybody. Another limitation, I think, is a lot of people still wonder about the adverse events and whether different risk of thromboembolism. Um, and I think our sample size was too small that we had so few adverse events that it was hard to really robustly measure whether we know for sure whether PCC or plasma has a different adverse event profile. Given all of the information you've given us, um, the cost, the time factor, the bleeding, the volume factor, and potentially the FDA uh, leaving out the or excluding the non-surgical interventional procedures because you wouldn't be able to determine efficacy. How would you go about deciding whether to use 4-FPCC or plasma in a patient uh, who has a prolonged INR and needs an urgent procedure? Sure. So I'd say that you can do it in two ways. One, you can sort of select out who are the patients for whom even a small amount of additional bleeding is a big, big problem, uh, or for whom time is super, super, super critical. So at least in our center, for example, bleeding in the central nervous system, we typically think meets that criteria. You know, a spinal epidural hematoma, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. even 10 cc's different is a dramatic effect. Same within the brain. You know, 10 cc's of extra blood in your brain is a life-changing life -changing event. So I think for those kinds of things where you're doing everything you can to minimize perioperative bleeding, I think those would be good times to consider using K-Centra. If time is really, really matters, and there are some surgical procedures, right, where time maybe where it's okay to wait till tomorrow, right? And, but there's some uh -huh. that it really isn't. And so uh -huh. if it really isn't okay to wait, then I think that's a good time to consider PCCs. I think they will, again, as I said, in real life, it'll reverse your iron much more quickly. Uh, and then last is the adverse event profile. Patients, I think, who are at really high risk for pulmonary edema or maybe have it, right? Like uh, somebody who comes in with uh, worsening CHF plus uh, needs a procedure and you really are trying to really hesitant to give the volume load of FFP or who is really unsafe to get that volume load. Those folks, I think, would be candidates where you may not be worried as much about the bleeding profile, but you're choosing uh, which agent has your best adverse event profile for that patient. That sounds like very reasoned and, and practical advice. Do you have any final comments you'd like to make? Thank you so much. I guess I want to just take a moment to thank uh, the many investigators around the country and, and in many other countries, uh, Europe and uh, Lebanon as well, uh, who participated, all the centers and, and all the patients who were willing to sign up for this trial. I think they, all those folks that really advanced our knowledge of how to manage VKA reversal and led to FDA approval of this new therapy. You know, whether you want to use it for one particular patient or another, I just think it benefits all of us to have another option in our armamentarium for these uh, patients. And so I'll just hope that all the listeners of this uh, will continue to enthusiastically participate in multicenter clinical trials like this one. Well, thank you very much for joining us today, Josh. You're very welcome, and thanks again for having me.
We have been talking today with Dr. Joshua Goldstein from Harvard Medical School about the article Four-Factor Prothrombin Complex Concentrate Versus Plasma for Rapid Vitamin K Antagonist Reversal in Patients Needing Urgent, Surgical, or Invasive Interventions, published in The Lancet in February 2015. This concludes another edition of the Eye Critical Care podcast. Please check out our website at www.sccm.org slash iCriticalCare for more information. For the iCritical Care podcast, I'm Dr. Margaret Parker. Mark your calendar to attend the 45th Critical Care Congress to be held February 20th to 24th, 2016 in Orlando, Florida, USA. This five-day event will bring together more than 6,000 members of the critical care community from around the world and will offer opportunities to share creative and stimulating ideas, make valuable connections, and obtain inspired perspectives. Visit www.sccm.org congress to register and for more information. Margaret Parker, MD, MCCM, serves as an associate editor for the iCritical Care Podcasts. Dr. Parker is professor of pediatrics at Stony Brook University in New York and is the director of the Pediatric Intensive Care Unit at Stony Brook Children's Hospital. A former president of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, Dr. Parker is involved in quality improvement and standardization of care in the pediatric ICU, as well as resident education. Her clinical interests include severe sepsis and septic shock in children. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.